0: Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, a new day that you have made, a day for us to rejoice, um, that you are God, and that you have made us your children. Father, thank you for your word that it is true, and that you love to use your word. Um, It is your provision for us, um, through which you reveal yourself and draw us near to you, and Work to expose how badly we need you and, and then you use it to make us more like your son and prepare us to meet you face to face one day. Father, what, what a daunting thought. Um, if we were in the hands of anything or anybody but you, um, surely we would tremble and be afraid. But thank you that um, your perfect love drives out fear so that we can look forward with hope to the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for being a gracious God who delivers grace upon grace. Father, I pray that this morning the teaching of your word would be fruitful, that your spirit would be here, making my words clear, giving us alertness and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we will take a break about halfway through, a short little break, but if you need to take a little break before that, feel free to grab something to eat or or whatever okay um, go ahead and grab your notebook, turn it over we're always going to start, well almost always going to start by taking a look at our Wellspring purpose and the disciplines so the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel transformed lives, so that the church is strengthened in its gospel purpose And we go after that with these three disciplines. And the first one is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God with the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Now turn to Psalm 119 with me. Okay. Psalm 119, verse 10 says, with all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Now, there are a lot of synonyms for God's word in Psalm 119, and commandments is one of them. So what this psalmist is saying, God, I have sought you with all my heart. In my innermost being, with all that I am, I have sought you. And I've pursued you. I've searched for you. And what does that pursuit produce? Well, he cries out, don't let me wander from your commandments. Don't let me forget them. Don't let me stroll away from them. Don't let them become unimportant to me. So in seeking God wholeheartedly, he actually sees the danger of wandering from God's word. And so we too, as those who've been born again, we are new creations, we're in a mixed condition, And we can be women who seek God with all of our hearts. And as we pursue the life of being a whole-hearted God-seeker, we too must guard our hearts from wandering from God's Word. And so we do that by cultivating this daily discipline of meeting with God in His Word, of seeking Him there, of reading prayerfully, worshiping Him as He's revealed Agreeing with him about sin that's exposed. Thanking him for his comforts and his promises. And asking him for wisdom. And understanding when we're confused and we need guidance. That is what God's grace in the gospel has made available to us. And this kind of pursuit of God and his word is what makes discipline 2 possible. Discipline 2 is the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Now, a lot of times we say that discipline two is the overflow of discipline one. And that's true in the sense that discipline two really isn't going to happen if discipline one is not. And yet overflow has this idea of abundance, right? If I'm filling up a glass at the faucet and it overflows, it's just pouring out because there's more water going in than the glass can hold. And I really want discipline to look like that in my life. You know, I want discipline one just to overflow um, with the love of Christ and the lives of the people I live with. And yet, I'll just tell you, a lot of times, the reality is that that's not automatic. You know, have you ever had just a great time with the Lord, and then you come out, and the first thing out of your mouth is something cross, you know, a little grouchy, selfish? You know, if if we're not intentional about shepherding our hearts when we're with the Lord to be prepared to be that overflow of God's grace in the lives of our household, you know, where my heart can go is that my service then and my words can just be so easily polluted with pride, resentment, selfishness, laziness. You know, Proverbs 14:1 says, "The wise woman builds her house." But the foolish tears it down with their own hands. Building doesn't happen by accident. And so when we meet with God in His Word, shepherd our heart with His Word, that is part of our equipping to be women who build, to be thoughtful and prayerful about how we live life in our homes, in our closest relationships, where lives rub up against one another, and where there are so often needs that need to be met and so many opportunities. To deny ourselves, and to forgive, and to extend grace, and to serve. It makes a huge difference when we can keep reminding ourselves that we are not slaves to sin. We are not slaves to sinful responses when we're sinned against or inconvenienced. But we can serve out of a love for God, because He has loved us first. Have you ever noticed the life of Jesus, when you're reading through the Gospels, he was no stranger to difficult household relationships. If you, haven't, if you haven't noticed that, look for that when you're in your Bible reading in the Gospels. And yet Jesus always pleased his Heavenly Father. And Jesus has already given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Second Peter 1. Ministry and service in our homes, done with a heart for God and the gospel, are opportunities to display what the gospel has done and is doing in us. Now last time, you might remember we talked about 2 Corinthians 4.7. We have the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels. That's what we are. So that the surpassing greatness of God's power will be seen as we care for our households. And discipline two is here to remind us that the first place that power of God at work in us through the gospel needs to be displayed is in our household and our family relationships. So that brings us to discipline three, which is ministry. So with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And we've said it before, these disciplines are not sequential. Right? They're not achievements that you finish before you do the next one. Um, That's that's not at all what we're after. But these disciplines help us describe priorities. We want to be women who have integrity. And that only happens when we're diligently preparing ourselves for the role that God does give us in one another's lives. And so we do that by continuing to grow and to be faithful in Discipline 1 and Discipline 2 as we step into other people's lives. As we invite people into that Discipline 1 and Discipline 2 part of our lives. So, discipline three is not graduate work. Okay, this is this is just part of being part of the body of Christ. It's not what you advance to. It's not what you do just when you get old enough to call yourself an older woman. Um, discipline three is for everybody. You know, the New Testament is full of one another's love, one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, serve one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, teach, admonish, comfort build up one another, and many, many more. Those are all part of what happens in Discipline 3. Now last time we talked about our mixed condition. And in this condition, this is what we need. It's what our hearts need. We all need to care for one another in this way. And we have that opportunity at Grace Bible Church, with our small groups, maybe when you're serving together with people. And we have that opportunity right here at Wellspring. We have it in our discussion groups. We have it with our buddies. I've heard a few people say, I don't get what the buddy thing is all about. (laughs) Um, It's someone for you to get to know. It's someone for you to maybe send a text to or an email or make a call or reach out and get together for coffee if that fits in both of your lives. It's someone to look for when you're here. It's someone to pray for. It's somebody you can share what you're learning in the Word. It's someone you could ask accountability for. Like, you know, would you just ask me tomorrow, if I open up my Bible. Um, But when we minister, um, we can encourage one another to seek God in His Word and to live that out in our families so that we will be fruitful for the Gospel wherever God puts us. Wherever your life takes you. In your home, or your grocery store, or the park, or where you go to work, or where you go to school. Um, And as we do that, as we continue to cultivate these disciplines in our lives, the whole church is strengthened. And that means, as a church, we better display the fullness of Christ. And that is a privilege. Um, So those are our disciplines. Uh, Last week, we looked at what the gospel does for our hearts, for our inner man. And we saw that the gospel makes us into a new creation. But that new creation is not new in the sense that it's Spotless and perfectly clean, like a new pair of shoes. Right? When we say new, you think of new shoes—they're white, they're not scuffed, they don't smell bad. Um, but we're new as as believers, not in this in the sense that we're not what we were. The old is dead and gone, and a genuine believer cannot go back to that. But God, in His wisdom and His goodness and His sovereignty, has caused us to be born again as new creations that are in a mixed condition. And we talked about the hope that we have because of all that God has done for us in the gospel. And we talked about new abilities and new desires. And we talked about ongoing weaknesses that we have. That although the old is gone, nonetheless, we carry with us still a residue of the old man, of weakness and sin. And so we have Hope. Because now we can fight against that sin that used to master us. You know, we, When we were slaves to sin, we served that sin. We didn't battle it. Um, and so the fact that as new creations we participate in the process of sanctification and that we can grow and we are growing in our desire and our ability to battle sin by God's grace, that is evidence that we have a new master. And we have a good master. Our new master is the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, with that foundation, we're going to move into a biblical survey of the heart. And we do that because God's Word says a lot about the heart. And when I'm not looking for it, it kind of just becomes white noise. I just read right past it. So I love coming back and going to this lesson every year and just being humbled and reminded about what God says. God says a lot about the heart. Um, Because if we're going to shepherd our own hearts, we do need to understand God's concern for our heart. So, we're going to take a look at what God wants us to know about the heart. We're going to talk about what the heart is, its qualities, what it understands, its call, its need. And we're going to look at all of that so that we are spurred on to embrace God's provision for our hearts in his word. Now when we begin, when we do this lesson on the heart, and then again um, next week when we, do our sur- our, we introduce Discipline 2 in the home, we like to start with a survey of what the Bible says. And for the most part, what we try to do is, with each question we're answering, each topic, each aspect of the heart we're looking at, we're going to walk through your Bible from left to right. Um, so if you, you don't have your outline, go ahead and take that out. Um, you see those different bold categories, and and we're going to, you know, each one of those walk through Old Testament to New Testament, and the reason is that God has unfolded over time; He's unfolded His revelation gradually. You know, He revealed to Moses exactly what He wanted His people Israel to have, what they needed to have a saving relationship with Him. That's what He gave to Moses, but as we know, He has built on that, and He has continued to reveal more of Himself. So we want to walk through these subjects the same way that God has set it up in his word. So today we're looking at a broad brush picture of what God tells us about the heart. And these early wellspring lessons, these are really big picture lessons. As we, After we introduce each discipline, then we'll dive in and, and uh, spend more time in just a particular passage. So, question one, what is the heart? We talk When we talk about the heart, we want to make sure we know what we mean. And you've heard, heard this already for the last two weeks. But the heart is the inner man. It's the inner person. It's you. It sums up who you are, inwardly speaking. We have the outer man, that's the physical part of us. And then the inner man, we can call the heart. The heart, God's word says, is the seed of doubt and hardness. The heart is also the seed of faith and obedience. The heart is the center of our emotions, our thoughts, our will. It's the wellspring, the source of who we are. So every word, thought, deed, everything we will, every emotion, it all comes out of the heart. Now, biblically, there's a lot of overlap between the heart and the mind. So, for example, in the greatest commandment, you look at this in your homework in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus is not cutting us into three pieces and saying, okay, you need to love God with each piece. Rather, there's overlap, and they're all describing who we are from the inside out. He uses heart, soul, and mind to underscore that we are to love him completely, all out. That there's no part of us that is not all about loving God. So if the heart has been enslaved to sin, the whole man is in bondage. And because corruption stems from the heart, it's there that God begins his work of renewal. God goes to work first on the inner man, and then that affects the the whole man so when we say heart again we're just talking about you we're talking about me not just a part of you but who you are at the core who you are in your totality the heart is the place that God reveals himself to us first and foremost God addresses us at the heart level God evaluates us at a heart level and when we stand before God he will not neglect our hearts So question two then, what does scripture say about the human heart? Now, we are speaking generally about the condition of the heart and what the condition of the heart is apart from new life in Christ. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 6-5. And again, this is one of those lessons we're going to be flipping a lot. You use your Bible in the way that's most helpful for you. I love I love seeing everybody flip their Bibles and knowing that you're seeing it for yourself in your Bible. And so next time you're reading in your Bible, you might remember like, oh yeah, that's that verse that we saw in Wellspring. But I know that doesn't work for everybody. If that distracts you... Um use it the way you want i'm going to be reading the verses i like turning to them here but of course i have them in my notes as well but because when i'm learning i like seeing the teacher like they're opening their bible like, that's right that's in the bible just that constant reminder but it also takes more time and this is a big lesson so i may not be flipping to every verse here but just just know that that is an area that you can decide what is most helpful for you but we're in genesis 6 5 And the word gives us this description of the human heart by way of explanation for what comes next in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. And that's the flood. Um, So verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now do you see just how wicked the heart of man is here. God is saying that every intent of the thoughts of his heart every intention any planned purpose of his heart there's nothing that doesn't just have wickedness saturating it every, only, continually all in the same sentence there's an emphasis here because there is no part of the heart that's outside of this man's great wickedness is primarily a heart problem so then in chapter 6 and 7 the flood comes and if you just started in your reading plan maybe you've read that and then the flood subsides in chapter 8, and Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, eight people alive on the face of the earth, they come out of the ark. And so then in Genesis 8, verse 20, we read that Noah built an altar to the Lord. He was worshiping, and that was a really good idea at this point. And he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself... Now, at this point, you might be thinking, Okay, Noah, we cleaned up the earth, and we are ready to start a new world. And God does not say that. He says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So during this moment of worship... God is stating again what is still true of the human race. It's a repeat of what he said in chapter 6. There are only eight people on the earth. And he's saying, as you worship me, as you come off the boat, there is still a problem. Man's heart is still evil. The point is that the judgment of the flood did not fix man's heart problem. Go ahead and turn to Proverbs 20, verse 9. Proverbs is smack dab in the middle of your Bible. It's right after Psalms. And Proverbs Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Well, it's a rhetorical question. And the obvious answer is nobody. The stain of man's heart is so great, we don't possess what it takes to cleanse it, to purify it. So the answer to the question, who can cleanse their heart, is no one, according to God. And so we've seen the heart is evil, and it's beyond our ability to cleanse. And now we're going to move into the New Testament in Matthew 15. Now this is a longer passage, but we need the context. So hang in there with me. Um, We're going to begin at verse 1. It says, Some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he, that's Jesus, answering them, said, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you, Pharisees, say, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God he is not to honor his father or mother and by this you invalidated the word of god for the sake of your tradition so do you understand what they're doing they knew god's commandment said honor your father and mother but they had set up their own traditions that gave themselves permission to not honor and to not help their parents and so this is what jesus says about that in verse 7 he says you hypocrites Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now why does Jesus point out this prophecy? It's because these are men who knew what the prophets said. They can't say, Oh, you want us to be concerned about our hearts? Why didn't you say so? God has already told them his concern. Now remember, this conversation started because the Pharisees were questioning Jesus about hand-washing. So in verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, like food eaten with dirty hands. But what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Now drop down to verse 15. Thank you, God, for Peter. Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. We don't get it. And so Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? And then he kindly explains it. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes through the stomach and it's eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So Jesus is telling us there's a source of corruption inside us. The heart is the source that defiles us, that makes us impure. Now turn over to Romans 1. We're going to look at verse 20. We're moving through the Bible, looking for what God has said about the condition of the human heart. So verse 20 of Romans 1 says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So from the beginning, God has made it clear that He is there. But verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So what is the proof of man's foolishness? It's this. Even though man knew something about God, people have had no intention to honor him as God at a heart level. And that's foolish. And that foolish heart plunges a person into further spiritual darkness. So, so far we've seen man's heart's evil, Beyond his ability to cleanse, the source of defilement within a person is his own heart. And now in Roman 1, that the foolish heart invites even greater spiritual darkness. So that's what God says about the heart. And that is a huge problem. Well, question 3 then, we're going to ask, Is the sinner alert to his heart's devastated condition? And we're going to see that the answer is no, because it is deceived. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 11. Um, Deuteronomy mentions the heart 45 times. Now if you were not following a reading plan to guide your time of meeting with the Lord, how often would you read Deuteronomy? Maybe not real often, but see if we don't read it, we are missing 45 windows into the heart. And we don't want to miss that. So verse 13 of Deuteronomy 11 says, It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul, that he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So under the Mosaic Covenant, there was a blessing for honoring the Lord from the heart, from the inner man. There was a relationship between their obedience and physical blessings and provision. But listen to what comes next in verse 16. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Now why would Moses say beware after he just got them talking about loving God and abundance and blessing and provision? God would only say that if there was something wrong inwardly with the inner man. And there is. The heart is easily deceived even when surrounded by blessing. And that's why we too need to be cautious. In our mixed condition, we can still be easily deceived. I need to be cautious of me, inwardly speaking, when everything is the way I like it because the heart is easily deceived even when it's at its best following God and obeying God Now, Jeremiah 17.9 is our next verse it might be familiar listen to what Jeremiah tells us about the heart he uses strong language and if you're, if you're turning to Jeremiah you just might want to stick a marker there because we're going to be back in Jeremiah a couple times But he says the heart is more deceitful, more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So here's what Jeremiah is saying. If we were to start making a list of everything that we could find in the world that was deceitful, anything at all, everything, there is not anything we would find that could beat the heart out of the number one spot it is that sick, it's so sick, it's beyond our grasp. We can't even understand its condition. It's worse than we think. That's why Proverbs 28:26 says, "He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. I mean that is very countercultural, is it not? So we saw in Deuteronomy that the heart is easily deceived even when it's at its best. And now we see in Jeremiah that the heart is the most exceptional deceiver. It is not trustworthy. So now we're going to read in James, moving back into the New Testament. And we're answering the question, is the sinner alert to her heart's devastating condition? The condition that we saw in question one, that it's evil, beyond our ability to cleanse, it's a source of defilement, it's foolish, it invites more darkness. Does the sinner understand that about herself? Well, James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and now we're talking about a religious person, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. A person thinks that she's religious, but she doesn't control her words. It's evidence she's deceived her own heart. So is the sinner alert to her heart's devastating condition? The answer is, no. How can she be? Again, this is apart from new life in Christ. How can she possibly be alert to her heart's condition when it's surrounded by and filled with deception? All right. so in question two, we saw the heart is evil beyond our ability to cleanse. And we're going to just keep reviewing these because we tend to forget that the heart is foolish and invites greater spiritual darkness. And then in question three, we saw that the heart is easily deceived when it's at its best. It's the most excellent deceiver. It's not trustworthy. And we've just read in James 1 that a person can deceive her own heart. Again, that is just a huge problem. So question four, what is the highest call of the human heart? Now you looked at this in your homework again. It's Matthew 22, and it's the New Testament repeat of what's in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus takes that summary command of what the law is all about and he uses it to answer a question in Matthew 22. He's asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the highest thing that a good Jew like me should be all about? And Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That is the highest call of the human heart, to love God. So, just to make sure we understand this correctly, this heart that's evil, that's beyond our ability to cleanse, that's our source of defilement, that foolishly invites spiritual darkness, that's easily deceived even when it's at its best, that is an excellent deceiver and can be deceived by others and by myself, that is the most central part of me before God, that heart is supposed to love God. And love him not just with a part of it, but with all of it. You know, if you didn't know Christ, wouldn't you be thinking, are you kidding me? God, do you know what you're asking? My heart is so low, and what you're calling my heart to is so high. I mean, this is humbling and sobering even as a believer, is it not? So that leads us to the next question. Does God see this whole predicament? Now you see the reference for 1 Samuel 16 on there. It's probably a really familiar phrase. God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what God said to Samuel when he was going to anoint David. All his brothers looked more kingly, I guess. But we're going to look at 1 Kings 8. Um, Solomon, he finished building the temple, and he's praying to dedicate it. And he's praying for the people of Israel. And he's appealing to for God to hear their prayers. And what we're really after is down in verse 39, but we're going to start in 37 so we have the little context. And Solomon prays, If there's a famine in the land, if there's pestilence, a blight or mildew, locust, grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and spreading his hands toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. So God definitely sees the heart. He sees every heart. In fact, He's the only one who knows every heart. So God definitely sees this predicament, this discrepancy between the heart's condition and his command to love him with all of our heart. Now go ahead and turn to Mark 2. We're going to go back to the Old Testament, but I want you to see how Jesus displayed his deity with this same kind of knowledge of the heart. Uh, Mark 2 verse 6 says that some of the scribes were sitting and reasoning in their hearts. See, they're not saying anything out loud. But in their hearts they're thinking, Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8, Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? See, the scribes, they were just thinking. But Jesus knows their thinking. He knows what's going on in their hearts. And he responded to them just as if they'd spoken it out loud. Jesus knows their hearts, and He responds to them on the basis of what's in their hearts. So now back to the Old Testament, we're going to look at Proverbs twenty-four. Now you see the reference for Psalm forty-four in your notes, and Psalm 44, 21 tells us that God knows the secrets of the heart. Um, but in Proverbs twenty-four, I'm going to read verse beginning in verse eleven: Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Now, see, that's a deception, because they did know. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? Isn't God the one who weighs the heart? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? So not only is God weighing the heart, not only is he testing man, but he's weighing each man so as to repay, to render to each one according to what he does and doesn't do so yes God sees and he sees for the purpose of repayment now turn back to Jeremiah 17 we read verse 9 earlier and in verse 10 we're going to see it again God sees the heart and he evaluates for the purpose of repayment Jeremiah 17 10 says I the Lord search the heart I test the mind. Again, he's not saying two different things, but he's saying the same thing in two different ways. He's saying there's nothing of you that I miss when I do this. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. The Lord searches the heart for the purpose of repayment. He comes to each one, and he evaluates, and he weighs, and he repays, and then he moves on to the next person. So does God see this predicament of the heart? And the answer is yes. In fact, he's the only one who sees it as it truly is. And he searches the heart for the purpose of repayment. So the unbeliever has a serious problem with their heart. We are going to... Alright, so we're on question six. Um, Deuteronomy 10, what is the greatest need of the human heart? And we're going to answer this in two parts. We're going to see that God calls man to do something about his own heart. God holds man responsible. And then the second part is that we're going to see God promises to do for man what man cannot do for himself. So in Deuteronomy 10, Moses is talking to Israel. And he says, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Isn't that good to remember? His commandments are for our good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affections to love them, And he chose their descendants after them. Even you, above all peoples, as it is this day. Moses is reminding the people of this beautiful relationship that the Creator God of the universe has given them with himself. He has set his affections on them, and he requires them to love him, and to walk with him, and to serve him with all their heart. And then verse 16, this is like a bombshell. He says, so circumcise your heart, and stiffen your necks no longer. Their hearts need circumcision. And they are commanded to do it for themselves. It is their responsibility. And then now we're going to look at Jeremiah 4. This is nearly a thousand years later in Israel's history. And God is still saying the same thing. Verse 4 of Jeremiah 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's a, get, a command. Again, he's telling them do this or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds god is concerned about the evil of their deeds and where he and where is he saying that that need needs to be fixed it's at the heart level he's saying to israel there needs to be a radical removal just like circumcision of all that's wrong with your heart or my wrath will come this is a serious need and then in verse 14 he says wash your heart from evil O Jerusalem why? that you may be saved how long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you how long will you keep being this way it's been a thousand years so here he's commanding the very same thing we saw in Proverbs 20 verse 9 that we can't do wash your hearts that was back in question 2 and yet he's saying, you do something about your heart. You wash it. God has identified the heart's greatest need. It needs a radical removal of all that's wrong. It needs to be cleansed. But he's placing that responsibility squarely on the shoulders of his people. Now turn over to Ezekiel 18. If you have your marker in Jeremiah, Ezekiel is just two books to the right. Um, So you can feel this tension that's building. Um, Ezekiel 18, verse 30, he says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent, turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Here it is again. Make yourselves a new heart. So if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, you're thinking, God, you want me to make the most important part of me before you? Who I am at the very core? You want me to make this part of me that bursts and nourishes and matures and launches all of my thoughts and my emotions, my desires, my words? The part of me that you never overlook? You want me to to do this? See a Jew who was hearing this should be asking that question and the answer is yes. The command is do this. And that would be very uncomfortable to hear. And that was the intent. They needed to be uncomfortable with this command. Now turn over to Joel 2. Over and over again God is making it clear that he holds his people responsible to do something about the need of their heart. Joel 2, verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. Now, to rend, that was to tear. That was the custom when something awful happened. It was a sign of deep mourning and sadness and grief. And God says, that is what you need to do to your heart. So he's saying, return to me with deep sadness for what you've made of yourself and tear your heart at the very heart level of who you are. You need to be showing deep grief and sadness and brokenness. Now we're going to skip over the James 4.8 lesson, but what we've seen is that the greatest need of the heart is to be cleansed, purified, and to have all that is wrong with it cut away like circumcision, to be torn in grief, to be made new. And man is commanded to do it. It is our responsibility. But now turn over to Deuteronomy 30. Having seen that the greatest need of the heart is to be cleansed, and that man is responsible for that, now we get to look at question 6 from another perspective. Part 2 of the answer is that God promises to do for man what man cannot do for his own heart. Now here is where we find the gospel of grace running through all of scripture. This is what we've been waiting for. Here is the hope. So, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, and all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, that's what was going on when Jeremiah and Ezekiel were writing, And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. And then he just goes on with all these wonderful restoration promises. And then down in verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live So the Old Covenant anticipated that a new heart was desperately needed and that God would provide it. From its earliest days, the Old Covenant made Israel long for the day when God would do something about their hearts. We're going to look at Jeremiah 31. We're backtracking through a lot of the same books we've already looked at. And what I hope you see is that God is so gracious in the very same places where he is warning them about their hearts he's right there and here he is he's going to give them hope right at the same time jeremiah and ezekiel were both written at a time when god was judging his people and sending them into exile but he's also promising that he will provide for their most desperate heart need so these next couple passages are talking about the new covenant that was promised to israel Verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, that's the covenant that came through Moses, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of these to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So this is the promise of the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they have not yet experienced as a nation, even today. But there is something of an inauguration of it with the church But it hasn't happened to Israel as a nation. But the house of Israel, the house of Judah, they have a glorious day ahead of them when this is fulfilled. Um, Because they will have this new covenant where the focus is at the heart level to do for their heart what what the old covenant could not do. Um, We're going to skip Ezekiel 11, and we're going to look at Ezekiel 36. And I, I hope that you're just getting like excited about reading your Old Testament because it's so rich in teaching about the heart. Um, Ezekiel 36:26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now a heart of flesh here means a soft heart. It's contrasted with that heart of stone that's fleshly and sinful and stubborn and unteachable. Verse 27, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Don't you love that? When God gives his people a new heart, his spirit will cause them to walk in his statutes. That is God's promise to Israel. They will get a new heart. But now you can look at Luke 22 with me. That's in the New Testament. And we're going to see the beginning of this promise being fulfilled. So here's Jesus, and it's the night before his crucifixion, and he's eating the Passover with his disciples. And verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So you can see that the cross is what's on Jesus' mind. That is where Jesus is focused. And verse 16, I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So he's just making it clear that his death is imminent. And then verse 19, when he would taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood so Jesus is taking the Passover supper and he's transforming it into what has become for us the remembrance of his death and he was inaugurating the new covenant that he would die to bring about so then we'll look at Acts 2 where we go to the time after Christ's death and his resurrection and his ascension and now the blood of the new covenant has been shed so the Holy Spirit has come on the disciples and they're speaking in tongues. They're speaking great things of God and there are Jews from many places who are gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost Feast and they could all hear them speaking these great things about God in their own languages. And they want an explanation. So Peter gets up and he gives his first sermon. And this is what he says at the conclusion. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is Jesus whom you crucified. So that's what how God um, thought about Jesus—that He is the Lord, He's the Messiah—and those listening to Peter were the ones who crucified Him. But then, verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Brethren, what shall we do?" Peter said to him, "I said to them, repent." and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself so the new covenant in Jesus' blood has been inaugurated and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all those who are present and what happens at a heart level in those who hear Peter they're pierced they experience conviction in the inner man So the heart is worked on by the preaching of the Gospel. The work that God promised is now starting. Now go over to Acts 15. This is what's called the Council of Jerusalem. And Gentiles are believing. And this is a shock to the Jews. Because what did the Jews think? That God was primarily working with Israel. It's even what God had told them when he talked about the new covenant. That he would make a new covenant with them. But watch what happens in verse 6. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. And after there didn't much debate, Peter stood up and he said, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. God is allowing Gentiles to participate in the promises of the New Covenant as well as Jews. But nobody, Jew or Gentile, can get into the New Covenant apart from faith and cleansing of the heart, of the inner man. So we saw that the greatest need of the heart is to be made new, to be cleansed, and that we are viewed by God as responsible. So why does God command sinners to do something like this with their heart that they can't do? Well, the reason is that it puts the response, it puts the accent on our responsibility—that um, we are responsible for what we have become, and we are responsible to do something about it. But that does not pr- uh, bleh, that does not hinder God's process of doing for a sinner what only God can do. It's what we saw in that event section of our brochure, all those salvation events, because it makes the one on whom he is working by his Holy Spirit cry out and say, I can't do this. Will you help me? Will you do it for me? It makes us cry out to God. It makes us look away from ourselves. When our eyes have been opened by God to see how devastated our heart is and to see how deceived. We are in the inner man. When our eyes are open to see that and God says, you're accountable, that's when a person cries out, God, save me. I'm done with myself at that point. I don't want to play religion. I don't want to play church. I want to be done with myself. And we cry out for God's grace in the gospel to do for us what we can't do, to change us at the heart level. So that's the gospel. That is why Jesus shed his blood to pay for all that we are responsible for, that we don't want to pay for ourselves, but that many will pay for with an eternity in hell separated from God. But Jesus suffered in our place so that we, by his grace, could be made new at the level of the inner man. And that's good news. We serve a great God. Now in his word, he paints for us a very, very dark picture of who we were and then he brings the light and we need to walk ourselves through this over and over again we need to walk one another through it and take this journey and remember where we were in our darkness and then once again step into the glorious light of the gospel and marvel at what Christ has done every day all the time look at who I am because of Christ look at where I've come not because of me but because of my great God and Savior and what he has done for me at the heart level. So we're going to take one more pass to the Bible with question 7 back to Deuteronomy 6. And while you turn there, let's just again review because it's just important to get our mind around all that God has saved us from. We saw in question 2, the inner man of a sinner is a devastated heart before God. We saw in question 3, the sinner is easily overcome by the deception in and around the inner man. In question 4, we saw that God commands the sinner to love him from the inner man with everything that he has and everything that he is. And then in question 5, we saw um, that God absolutely understands what he's asking of us. That he is the only one who sees our inner man completely. And that he holds sinners accountable for their actions. In in number six, then we saw the greatest need at the inner man level for sinners is to be changed there. But that the sinner cannot change his own condition. And so the sinner must look away from herself and call out to God to do for her at the heart level what she can't do. To cleanse, circumcise, and to be made new. So lastly, what has God provided for those trusting in him to help them see their heart's condition? This is really what this whole lesson is building toward. If you get home you think, now why did I need to know all those things about my heart? It's because we, this is our foundation for discipline one. We need to understand what God's provision is for our hearts, for hearts that have been changed by the gospel. Now, Deuteronomy 6.4 reads, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So again, they're thrust up against this. How am I supposed to love God like this? Verse 6, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's God's provision for our heart that has been changed by the gospel. It's his word. It's that we would have his word in full contact with our inner man. In Ezra 7, we see that Ezra understood this. He was a scribe. This is long after Israel was sent into captivity and now God has brought them back to the land. And it says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is the Old Testament version of shepherding your heart. Ezra set his heart to study and to practice God's word. That's what we're talking about in Discipline 1. Ezra knew his heart needed to be in full contact with God's Word. And so we just have to ask ourselves, do we, do we understand how badly our hearts need the Word? Go ahead and turn to Psalm 119. You've got Psalm 19 in your notes. You looked at that in your homework, and maybe you remember seeing that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Again, God's Word is His provision for our hearts. But in Psalm 119, verse 9, we read, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Verse 10, we talked about this in the disciplines. With all my heart, I have sought you. That's the key. That's what this is all about, is that our hearts need God. And it's always been this way. It was this way for the Old Testament believers, too. The heart needs God. And so notice what he says next. It's not just any kind of a spiritual experience. But he says, Don't let me wander from your commandments. And the reason is because what my heart needs is God and God is revealed to me in his commandments. Verse 11, your word I've treasured. Where? In my heart. I've treasured that at the heart level. Why? That I might not sin against you. See, the psalmist understood that the only way not to sin against the Lord who loves him is to treasure his word in his heart. So the psalmist esteems the word. It's his treasure. It's what he values. And he treasures it in the inner man. There is nothing more precious to him. This is not something that he engaged with casually or occasionally. Like Ezra, the psalmist understood his need for full contact with his heart and God's word. Now listen to verse 34 in Psalm 119. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. Verse 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 112, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever. So there's just this emphasis on keeping the word of God at a heart level. Now You have verses from Proverbs listed there also. We're not going to turn there. But these are the pleas of a father exhorting his children to bring his words into full contact with with their heart. He says, bind them continually on your heart and write them on the tablet of your heart. See, it's not just our hearts that need to be engaged with God's Word, it's the hearts of our children, it's the hearts of everyone we have the opportunity to care for. Now Jeremiah thirty one thirty three we read already. Um, under the New Covenant God said He would put his law on their heart. So God commands, get this word near your heart. And then he says, he's the one who's going to do it. Um, let's go to the New Testament and look at what Jesus said about the word in our heart in Luke 8. Jesus tells this foundational parable about a farmer sowing seed on different soils. Um, and then he gives the meaning of the parable in verse 11. The parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their Heart, So they won't believe and be saved. See, the enemy knows what God's provision is for our hearts. And he does not want God's word coming anywhere near it. And then verse 13, those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while. And in a time of temptation they fall away. And then the seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who've heard. And as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity, but the seed in the good soil those are the ones who've heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance in three of these soils the word gets snatched away or it sprouts but it dies or it gets choked out but in verse 15 we see the only good soil, and these are the ones who've heard the word with an honest and good heart. And we know how they got that heart, right? It's not of themselves. It's what God has produced in them by the gospel. And they hold fast the word and they bear fruit. That is Jesus' intention, is that God's word would be in contact with our heart, full contact, so that it would produce fruit in our lives. Um, Luke 24. Um, In this passage, Jesus has been raised. And he's walking with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his crucifixion. And they are discouraged. And they don't realize that it's Jesus who has joined them. And so they're explaining to him what's been going on. And Jesus says, "Oh, foolish men, this is verse 25, slow of heart to believe in all of the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures now is that not a walk you'd like to be on (laughs) Jesus called them foolish he said they were slow of heart their hearts were too slow in their interaction with the word of God so what does Jesus explain to them the word and he explains what the word says about himself and his suffering so the answer for my slow foolish heart is Jesus' suffering and where do we see that But in the gospel, Jesus is the one who takes away sin and makes us new in the inner man. And then down in verse 32, the disciples get to where they're going and Jesus eats with them. And they still haven't recognized him until he breaks the bread. And then they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was explaining these scriptures to us? Their hearts were on fire as he was teaching the word of God to them. Their hearts were burning because the gospel was being proclaimed to them by their Savior. An amazing thing. Well, let's go to Hebrews 4. Remember, we talked. We had a question about it, and we saw all these verses about God examining the heart. And for the unbeliever, that indeed should be terrifying. But because of the gospel, we have a completely different orientation to God's examination of us. So, beginning in verse 12 of Hebrews 4, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So that's God's design for his word with us, that it would come near to our hearts, and that we would use it like a surgical tool, and we would allow his word to reveal the thoughts and intentions that are going on inside our hearts. But then let's continue. Verse 13, it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So God's word actually allows us to see our hearts the way God does. So God's word is going to expose our sin, and it's going to expose weaknesses and temptations. And so therefore, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast to this gospel. Why? Verse 15, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. All these things that are exposed by the word that we see in our hearts, Jesus can sympathize with that. He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So verse 16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's why we need to bring our hearts into full contact with God's word. The word exposes our heart and it draws us near to our Savior, our sinless, great, high priest, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who reigns over us from a throne of grace, where we approach him with confidence to receive grace and mercy, to help our need. Hebrews 13.9 says, It is good for the heart to be strengthened with grace. And that is what happens when we draw near to him in his word. God's word is his provision for our hearts. So, what does our inner man need more than anything? Even in this new condition, this mixed condition, that old man that we had in the diagram over on the right, um, he was only in one mixed, un, one unmixed, deceived, devastated condition. But now, in our new mixed condition, we can still be deceived. But what's different is that with this new inner man, that we've been given a capacity by God, for God, to know Him, to love Him to draw near to him and to obey him to hold fast to his word you know if we don't what are we trusting in you know there really are only two choices we can tr- trust ourselves to God or we can trust in our own hearts and do you remember Proverbs 28:26? the man who trusts in his own heart is a fool I um, was meeting with Laura yesterday in Josh Kelso's office and he's got a whole wall of books kind of like being here. You just kind of want to go stare at them. And I saw one that I pulled off the shelf and I opened it to what it said about this verse. And it was so good that I had to add it to the lesson. Because it said, To trust an imposter who has deceived us a hundred times or a traitor who has proved himself false to our most important interests, is surely to deserve the name of fool. This name, therefore, the scripture, using great plainness of speech, gives to the person who trusts in himself, who trusts in his own heart. And so we guard our hearts and entrust ourselves to God by prayerfully meeting with God in his word so that we can know this precious Savior who is revealed in the word, who bled to bear away in his body the sins of our hearts. Okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, that it is powerful. And Lord, thank you that because of the work on the cross, we do not need to fear any longer drawing near to you and letting your word expose us. Father, thank you that right there at the same time that you are exposing to us what you already know and what you already see and what Christ already died for. You call us before your throne of grace. You are a God who is just ready to supply, has already supplied everything we need for life and godliness. Thank you. Father, as we mull over this lesson and try to digest it, Father, I pray that the result would be just more love for you and a love for you that just grows our hunger for your word and you grant us understanding when, you're, when we're in your word. I pray that our time together in discussion would be rich, that it also would be a time of each woman feeling loved by you and by your people and being encouraged, being spurred on. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, can I, I just want to talk about the homework really quickly. Um, Once again, last week was a longer homework and hopefully you're understanding that sometimes we'll have that extra sheet where we're going deeper. That's going to take a little more time. But I I hope that that was helpful in this lesson having been looking at what God's Word said about itself. Um, This week we're back to a little bit shorter assignment. Um, And we're going to have Lori teaching for us next time on the Survey of the Heart. So those verses on the back are just going to give you a chance to kind of preview uh, a few of the scriptures that she'll be covering for us. Um, but, it, but hopefully the, the layout is clear just helping to kind of uh, get the most out of all the different aspects of Wellspring if you have any questions at all about that, that um, but you may go and um, have your discussion groups where you usually have them and when it gets to 9 o'clock if you'll just close in prayer